Welcome to Season 5 of KnowledgeCast, hosted by Jack Williams. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about this new season along with our guest in previous seasons at jackwwilliams.com slash podcast. Now let's listen in to an all-new episode with Jack and this week's special guest. Welcome to our fifth season of Knowledge Cast. Glad you joined us today. And if you're a first time listener, is always welcome. And if you're one of our regulars, thanks for coming back. Well, today we're going to pick up uh, with Bronco Mendenhall, the former head football coach at BYU and Virginia, who a couple of years ago stepped away from coaching to reassess what he and his wife wanted to do in the next stage of their life. So, Bronco, listen, thanks so much for uh, being back with us. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you again. Well, you started doing something at uh, BYU that most college football coaches would just say is impossible. And I know you have a, a definition of impossible and you shared Muhammad Ali's definition in the earlier uh, podcast. But you left the office each day during the season from 12 to 1.30 to what you said, refresh your mind and body. Why did you start doing this? How did you pull it off? And what type of activities did you do during that midday break? Yeah, I mean, I would love to, I would love to share that. Uh, so I went to a seminar early on in my coaching career. I think it was after year three and we had just gone 11 and two and 11 and two and won the conference championship and had the nation's uh, best winning rate at home. If I remember right, or the nation's longest winning streak, one of the two. And yet I, I was unfulfilled and really struggling uh, to, to find fulfillment in the role that I had. And there's increased scrutiny and you kind of are always on as a head coach and there's, you're basically a public figure and that's a new life. And it kind of forces you to reassess a lot of things. So I went and I heard and participated in a workshop with uh, three other coaches. I won't share their names, but you would know them all prominent and very successful. And the leader of this facility closed basically the facility for the four of us. And the very first question he asked us and he pointed his finger directly at us, almost in a, in a challenging kind of way. And these men weren't used to being challenged in that way by anyone um, with the reputations they had. And he said, who are you without your job, your title, and your money? And it started that way. And so you're no longer a head football coach. You're not treated like that. You don't have the, the millions that come with that. And you don't have a job that occupies every waking minute of your existence for 24 hours a day. And that's really not much of an exaggeration. And then what's left was basically this idea of this workshop. And the, the name of the book that I read in response to that uh, was authored by James Lair, uh, a sports psychologist, and he works with corporate America now. It's called The Power of Full Engagement. The premise meaning that you're managing energy, not time. And wow, did that change my entire paradigm. So, so time became irrelevant. Energy, right? That's the capacity to do was everything. And so I realized in this amazing work that if all you're doing is giving um, and not renewing, then how is that going to be possible? And could you truly be the best version of yourself for your organization or anyone else? And the answer is no. And so for me personally, I found that that had to be an hour and a half and I had a Harley Davidson. So I would either go on a motorcycle ride, Provo River is close, fly fishing. This is in season, right? On a Tuesday <laughs> or Wednesday, 
right? Um, certainly could be exercise, um, right? Whether I'd be running um, or maybe hiking. It could be reading. I love to read. Uh, it could be anything that I felt was going to renew and give me the best chance for my energy to, to regain and become and help me sustain that to where any interaction I had outside of that hour and a half, I would be my best self. And I thought I owed that to not only my own family, right? Not only my father in heaven and my faith, but anyone in our organization. And just enduring the day um, is not okay. I like bright, vibrant, energized people and engaged people. And I figured, and I found out in, in, after I read that book that managing that energy you can say it, but then doing something about it actually represents a different level of belief. And so I've done, I did that ever since. So the 17 years I was the head coach. Um, and I also asked my coaches, my assistant coaches to do the same. And, and that's hard. Uh, they didn't, they didn't I bet you got, I that. bet you got pushback on that real quick. Didn't you? I did. And, and surprisingly, because the, the simple thought was how are we going to win if we're not working as much? So I doubled down on that, meaning that on Thursdays, right after practice, the entire staff would come off site, at least to Virginia. I had 30 acres of horse, uh, horses there, fishing pond, a swimming pool. We did all of our football meetings after practice at my house. And then basically the, the coaches would be, then be in the pool or fishing or resting or riding um, their horses or families would show up. Again, this is still in season. So that's in addition to the daily routine. That was Thursday, and then Sundays we didn't work. And so that's probably the fewest hours in all of Power 5 football. Yet the record would indicate um, that it might have been some of the most successful um, outcomes that had ever been achieved. And so the idea wasn't to be less committed. The idea wasn't to be lazy or not engaged. The idea was that built-in renewal then allows you to be going on rocket fuel every other time and when, so I believe work expands to the, to the boundaries you set. So if you have a, um, someone, a leader you're working for and you're not allowed to stay, but yet the expectations are higher than anyone else in the, in the country in terms of the output, how in the world is that going to happen? You start to become really good at communication, innovation, creativity, and you find a way. But what, who benefits most from that is not only the individual, but the families. Absolutely. And those kids, they see their dads, the wives see their husbands. And again, uh, I'm not saying this is in place of outcome. I'm saying this actually facilitates a better outcome. But wow, is it hard to do and, and hard to apply? Well, you were just optimizing energy is what you were doing. Exactly. Um, yeah, again, as, as I, I never was a head coach, but I coached for seven years and uh, at the college level and nobody wanted to be the first one to leave the office because they felt like, you know, you had a stigma that you weren't, you weren't committed. I, I want to do one more question about Brigham Young before we jump to Virginia. Um, your approach to recruiting at Brigham Young was unique. You, you had a unique school, you had a unique um, sales um, uh, offering there, if you will. Uh, you, you created the most extensive screening process of a potential football prospect I've ever heard of uh, before you would even, quote, put them on your board. Uh, talk about that and how it worked for you. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to summarize as best I can. About the same time in the selection and assessment process at BYU, Angela Duckworth had, had, was coming out and, and talking about her book called Grit, G-R-I-T. Yeah. And grit is a powerful predictor of outcome. In fact, more powerful than test score GPA. And grit is the stickiness, the stick-to-itiveness of kids doing hard things and people doing hard things. So going back to BYU, again, 98.5% of the population at that institution was of one faith. So that in and of itself was a specific and unique screening process. So that was already um, challenging. Within that, you had to determine if these young men were going to go serve missions or not. I have two boys serving missions right now. That's two years away from football, where all they're doing is proselyting, and there's nothing else in their life other than their application of faith, and many of which are in foreign countries. 75% of my team at BYU spoke foreign languages, and almost four, now between 30 and 40 pre were married there. So I'm now thinking- the, Now, these two-year missions, in some cases, were occurring- after they had come to BYU. So they're interrupting their football career. That's exactly right. So it could become, it could happen after high school graduation, or it could be they decide a player walk in my office and it might be a starting nose tackle and said, coach, I've decided to go on a mission. And man, a lot of coaches would be trying to talk them out of it saying, what way you're our nose tackle and our offices would be celebrating. And he might be, you know, serving in, in Guatemala or um, Russia or, and, and he might come back 100 pounds heavier or 100 pounds lighter. To, 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 you know. <laughs> so anyway, we had to be selecting on going back to smooth stone one on differentiation. And if that's the most one of the most unique places in the world to play a game, then the selection process ought to be the same. So anyway, I leveraged that with the grit idea. We had a grit scale. I would not offer a scholarship unless a player came to our camp to demonstrate competencies, um, which is unheard of. But then what we found is, um, over time, when I became a head coach, about a third of the team, as you and I talked before in our last episode, um, quit or left the program. And, and I didn't celebrate any of those decisions, but I did allow them to happen for this idea of the power of choice and the direction of someone's life. And, and so what I learned, and I became frustrated as to what did those players have in common? Did any of those third that left, did they have anything in common? <laughs> And it was keeping me up at night. So we conducted our own social study and I continued it at UVA. What we found was, and what, what I'm going to call simply the third thing, not any of those kids had a third thing. And so they might've been fiercely competitive and really good at their sport. They might also have been really good in school. And you would think, man, that's enough. What, what else can you do? What I found was the kids that then held a job the kids that then might work at a family business, the kids then that were super devoted in their faith. And, and it showed. So in my, in our, in my faith, they have what's called seminary that's before school. So these kids get up and, and that's right. at six o'clock. So many of them are up at five and they're basically going to Sunday school six to seven, even before school starts. Well, what if this is a great story? What if a young man is in, in, in Hawaii uh, going to a private school, public transportation is uh, an hour to get to the seminary building. So he's he's getting up early in the morning, four o'clock, catching public transportation to get to early morning seminary, then an exceptional student, then an exceptional player. Oh, and by the way, he's amazing uh, in choir and a singer, does that after practice and then takes the public transportation home and had 100% attendance at early morning seminary for four years. Incredible. So 
So my point is to, to the selection and assessment and being unique. I wanted kids that had, that were exceptional at the normal two things, right? That's the football in the school. That, that was a given and they had to be great people, right? That's already in place. I was looking for what in addition to that. Um, and I found that that third thing was the greatest predictor of resiliency. And those are the kind of kids I wanted to be around. I, I believe I'm correct. Uh, correct me if I'm not. You had narrowed down one year. You had 24 scholarships to give, and you had narrowed down your prospect list to 34 names, I believe. And you ended up. I mean, that was your targeted list to go after, and you ended up signing 20 of those 34. I believe that's, that's correct. correct. And I, I presented this idea of unrelenting standards to increase the differentiation of our program. And my coaches, after we, we found these names, we were sitting around the staff room table and their heads were down and they were just despondent. And it was like, man, we only found, we only have 34. <laughs> and I was like, well, we only need 24. And I had my fist in the air. I mean, we got more than we need. And, and it, <laughs> but more importantly, I believed we had the right ones and we certainly didn't get them all. And I don't think you ever will. Uh, but what I did and what I was trying to teach to my staff as well was what a privilege to be here, but this is what we're looking for. And as soon as you compromise your standards, you compromise your principles. And once your principles are compromised, your culture and your performance then is going to wither away and die. And I thought the best way for that to be um, held onto and vibrant was at the front end. Um, and you and I both know the back end exit um, of a firing or a player leaving, it, it's heartbreaking. Right. And so doubling down on the front end of the selection and assessment, this would be for young people dating as well. A movie is not going to do it. I mean, I'd be saying, you know, backpacking trips and something hard and something difficult and seeing each other tired and, and hungry and just, just doing hard things because that's what marriage is and that's what team sports are and that's what life is. So I'd be wanting to see, um, my my future partner or friend or teammate in as many challenging situations as possible rather than just dinner in a movie. Interesting. Well, let's step forward to uh, your transition to Virginia. I know you had offers because of your success at BYU. I think UCLA was one. Um, but you make a decision to leave BYU when you're, rock, you're just rocking and rolling uh, to go to Virginia. What prompted that? Well, it's a really good question. And I, I've really struggled to, to have the vocabulary and the words to, to describe it. I'm, so I'm going to take a, a shot at it um, through a story. Uh, after our 11th season as a head coach, my wife, Holly, and I were just reminiscing one night about our time there. And I, I don't I don't know what prompted that. But almost it struck me in our conversation as we were talking, almost all of our stories were from the beginning when we were turning the program from struggling to successful and the vibrancy and the stories and, and just in watching and hearing us talk, the energy about the beginning. And we love the whole time. And we, I, I think our record, we almost averaged 10 wins per year at like nine point something, however you do that. So right. it's almost double digits the whole time. So it wasn't like it was only the beginning, but there was this space of the beginning because of how hard it was, but seeing it turn that we both were just like, wait, I think this is who we are. We're, we're like, we're changing. We, we like, we like doing, helping things go from not so good to good. 
And so we, Holly and I at that point framed three different criteria. Um, and so if there was a place that had these three criteria, we would consider. And so the first one was they had to really be struggling, right? This had to be a program that was just really having a hard time. The second is they had to care deeply about something other than football. Like if these, these kids that go to this institution, wherever it is, they better be passionate about something and the institution better be really good at something. And Holly and I both love learning and academics. So preferably the academic rigor is just off the chart. And, and that I was number two. And the third is they had to try to be pulling off this transformation and this development of people at the highest level. And that would be the power five level because I think the narrative would then show, we thought, man, someone needs to try. And, and I'm not going to say we were the only ones, but there needs to be more people that are trying to do all of this. And so the University of Virginia, the search firm looked at, uh, reached out and we learned that they were really struggling. We learned the average student, there's a 4.3 GPA. And at that right. time, only two schools were graduating more student athletes than, than UVA. And we learned about the Jeffersonians and the scholar and the honor code there and, and the leadership development. And so, okay, yeah, they really care, not kind of care. They really care about developing amazing leaders and students. Um, and they're in the ACC. And so we're in Utah and that's Virginia. We knew nothing about East coast, but those three criteria. So put it this way. So I think every choice, right. Is governed by a principle and every principle is governed by a belief. And so we already knew where wasn't as, as important as the three criteria in Virginia, we felt fit those criteria. And so we, we asked our three boys, it had to be unanimous. Who's ready for the next adventure. My wife promised them my Holly. She said, this will be the greatest adventure of your life. And she allowed us each myself included and her to pack this little duffel that had to be able to fit in a saddlebag. That's how we defined how big it could be. And we got, (laughs) we got on an airplane, um, and this is mid-season, so the kids are transferring to new schools with our duffel bags to take on this new adventure. Oh, that's that's a great story. Well, now, let, let me ask you this. You had a unique situation at BYU. You set up your model for that environment. What, what adjustments did you have to make going to a school that was not, you know, 100% faith-based? And, and what were you able to uh, transition from BYU over to UVA? Wow, what a what a great question. And and um, I, I really didn't know. And almost the entire first year was just a discovery process. We hadn't had losing seasons before. In our first season, we went two and 10 um, before having five bowl eligible seasons. That two and 10 was discovery. So we didn't realize. So my first team meeting at Virginia, the depth of despair of the student athletes, just seeing the demeanor, the way they sat, the way they communicated, the lack of eye contact, it was a broken program with broken people, which even made it better. Like it was just, wow, this is going to be fantastic. And I promised them it's not if, but when um, we win the coastal division, when we beat our rival, when we're in the orange bowl, we started talking in those terms. The simple answer as a starting point only was basically the academic rigor and the leadership development replaced the faith component as the primary um, screener uh, screening. Okay. And so that's where it started. And then from there, as we became more familiar with what we currently had on our roster, what our current mindset was, what the expectations were, um, then we developed it. We spent we spent nothing other than the first six weeks in offseason training trying to master our warm up. 
right? Not lifting, not <laughs> running, not we, really. Yeah, I would not let the team move forward until they could master the warm up. And our staff was nervous, and their coach, we're with spring practices coming, we're still working on the warm up. And I said, yeah, we might not practice in the spring. And they they were just like, what? And and it was it was hard. Uh, however, um, when a player mastered the warm up, he got to then lift weights. It was a privilege. And when he mastered lifting weights, he got to then run, right? And when he mastered running, he got to then practice. And so we'd have players still in the warm-up, some lifting, some running, some practicing. And by the way, you couldn't play without a jersey number, and you couldn't earn a jersey unless you were just relentless in how you're doing this. And this was a team that didn't want to play. But so we were building people one step at a time for the privilege of, much like the martial arts, they're all dressed in white. And when they would demonstrate and test competencies, they would then earn after um, a rite of passage. Uh, so, for instance, to go from white to gray, besides testing in their competencies and doing well on the on uh, within strength and conditioning and football specific criteria, they would then have a rite of passage, much like the warrior cultures, where they'd go basically um, on some challenge. And so they put backpacks on and go have to run every stadium step and through campus, et cetera, running through all the students. And then the very top corner of the stadium, they'd find their new set of gear, which would be gray and gray, by the way, is average, but at least had a V on it. And those kids would celebrate, <laughs> they would celebrate like crazy. And then they would go like crazy. And, and, and for, it might even been another year and they would test again and they would have a rite of passage where they'd go from gray. They'd have to go from white to gray, that rite of passage. Then they'd go from gray and they'd find uh, the rotunda and their orange gear would be there. And after, so they'd get there and they'd hold up their orange gear and they'd be wearing that. And so they were getting feedback as to their progression and where they stood. But you've never seen people care for an orange T-shirt or a gray T-shirt as, as they would for uh, just representing the journey they were taking. And so this, this whole idea of player development, back to your question, the difference became as to the building of competencies of each individual of doing the small things well, but being transparent about when a change was made with an individual and then doing the same thing within the strategic part of units gaining momentum, right? It really became the acceleration and growth and development of each individual within the organization, which then got us bowl eligible in year two, won a bowl game in year three, Orange Bowl and Coastal Division in year four uh, prior to COVID hitting. So the player development parts, I would say, became a real focus point that was necessary in a double down effort there from what we experienced at BYU because the expectations were so low externally, but also internally. So we were having to build those. A lot of coaches talk about process, but uh, your process was with a capital P. I mean, you were really diligent that you did not sacrifice the standard just to move someone through to the next level. Uh, now I, I tell you, I'm going to have to try to not grin when I say this, but you did something in Virginia um, that I've never seen done before. You, you mentioned that you had a ranch out there and you had some horses, mm -hmm. but you had a requirement that every one of your coaches, every one of your players, and every one of their prospects on their official visit had to come to your ranch and you had to teach them how to ride a horse. Why did you do this and what did you learn through that? Pro I know it was a process that you were using. Yeah, it, it's just like we talked before, and, and so that is true, uh, but just like we talked before, the front end of a selection and assessment process is it can't be highlighted enough. 
And so literally the players would arrive on their official visits, dump their bags in their hotel. And the next thing they did is they were on site on the ranch. Um, and I learned over time, the best way to kind of, um, uh, to make this process work, but eventually it was myself and two players at a time. And so the folks would brought, bring them, their parents would bring them out to the arena. The, the parents would stay on one side of the fence. The kids would come through the gate. I'd have the horses saddled and I'd teach them. Uh, the basics about uh, riding a horse and, and being an equestrian and a horseman in the arena first. And I'd watch the parents and how they were navigating their young son doing something different. Were they worried about his sneakers getting dirty or were, did they want to sign an additional waiver for something or were the mom and dad arguing about how we should get on or get off or were they coaching over me as I was trying to teach him to ride? And then I was just watching the young person. Was he eager and excited to come get on or was he hesitant and reserved? Did he have to be coaxed to get on? And so I was assessing a family dynamic. I was assessing a young person just as to, is this someone I want to see every single day for five years? And I had a pretty simple rule. I would not work with anyone I didn't like. And, and like doesn't mean, um, uh, I'll put it this way. Like would mean that if, if you had a limited amount of time and your schedule was so full and you had a half hour, is this something you would call and want to do, do something with that person, right? That, that would be like, so they had to be an amazing person, but also someone that's really good at what they did. So it'd be where you couldn't wait to see him. Wait, I got a half hour. Let me call him so he can come over and we can play or whatever. So I was assessing that. So the families didn't know that was assessment. They were just getting a cultural experience to ride. Then I would just walk out of the arena, ask the players to follow me. And we had a, a path cut around the 30 acres uh, now the horses were out of the arena. The parents are left and I'm, I'm taking these two kids on horseback and we're just visiting while we're riding. And man, by the time after we got, by the time we got back, they'd be sitting in the saddle, like they're coming back on a cattle drive from Amarillo or <laughs> someone, someone would be checking their watch or someone would be looking at their phone while they're riding. I was just paying attention. Um, and I was deciding and the assistant coaches would be waiting because they knew after that ride, I'd be giving them a thumbs up or thumbs down. And this wasn't about, are they a good enough player? And this wasn't, are they a good enough person? This was just, do they fit with me as the head coach? And is this someone I really want to see? And the very next day, um, we would just play follow the leader off the diving board, right? Something simple, but I would just watch who's willing to, to try. And uh, those intimate moments back to the dating process for young people and fit demonstrated competencies to see people when they're doing something new, to see them when they're struggling, to see them when they're at their highs, when they're lows. I'd want to find out as much as that as I could before we signed the papers. And it was a great gift for the families as well, because they could see what they were getting. And when I left UVA, um, and this was the beginning of the transfer portal, we had the third fewest number of transfers. Um, these players wouldn't leave. They wouldn't leave because they, were, they knew what they were signing up for at the beginning. And they were treated the same way through the whole time as what they saw. And that's what they wanted. And, and so it's just a valuable rule for just meaning what you say, doing um, what's honest, and then letting people see that and assessing fit. And so that's why, plus they had fun, which is, right, it's an amazing thing. And the ones that didn't have fun doing that, um, when that was so central to my existence, Right. There's going to be some challenges there if, sure. if those interests are so different. So anyway, that's why. And it was just it was great. What a, what a great uh, analysis there. Well, you resigned after the 21 season. 
at Virginia, and I guess we'd have to say unexpectedly, and you, you purposely announced at that time that you weren't resigning, uh, excuse me, that you were resigning, but you were not retiring. I believe you used the term reframing. Uh, share what you were thinking at that time and, and why you made that decision. I, I get asked that a lot. And and what I was thinking, when my wife, Holly, and I got married, um, we spent two years together before we decided to have kids. And man, we wanted to know besides dating, which I've already described, right? But we wanted to know everything about each other and and just have our own time. Well, at the end of that season, um, our kids had all left home for the first time, right right as the season ended. And so we were empty nesters for the first time. And I thought it would be um, really wise for Holly and I um, to reconsider and to reframe what we wanted the second part of our life to look like. Because all we had known is head coaching and college football. Right. And sometimes when you're right in the middle of something, it's hard to see things objectively. And so I believe with distance comes clarity. And yet no one saw it coming. And uh, but I felt in my heart um, that and I'd always had this idea of chapter two of our lives being greater than chapter one, right, of unbroken growth. And so I thought some time and distance with our kids being gone now for the first time since Holly and I were married um, and had kids for us to really think about our, do we want to re-enlist? Is this where we can have the most impact? Is this where we can do the most good? Is this what we're truly supposed to be doing? And how can we know without not having it back to that very first question, who are you without mm -hmm. your job and your money? So we've had a chance now to set up these two properties in Montana for the infrastructure of chapter two for our kids and grandkids to come back to this beautiful place. And by November of this upcoming year, um, then we will have redecided. And that most likely is a return as clarity is coming to both of us um, that the world of college football is, is who, where we're supposed to be um, doing the work that is probably harder now than ever in an environment it's probably more misaligned than ever for truly developing young people. And we might be needed more than ever. And so we're uh, it's just become so clear over time. And, and we're both kind of giggling and excited and holding hands to kind of like be smoke jumpers, you know, like, so wherever the fire is, <laughs> yeah, like, kind of, yeah, you kind of go to there and we're, Get we're on kinda, a fire truck. Yeah. We're, we're kind of holding hands to, and, and it's just fun to be able to reconsider and reposition and then relaunch and jump off and pull the chute with someone else that wants to go into the smoke also. Um, and that's the, my best explanation. Well, I think that's typical Bronco Mendenhall explanation. Uh, I know once you, you stepped away, there were a lot of people that were just shocked in the coaching profession. Cause again, you had a successful program going. And I also know that uh, you spent some time, you were invited by other head coaches to, come visit with them. I'm curious, what, what did they want to talk about yeah. with Bronco Mendenhall? It's really interesting. Uh, it happened almost the day after, um, it might've been the day after my, my announcement, the phone started ringing from other head coaches. And what was clearly, clearly, clearly apparent was leadership is lonely and head coaches are isolated. And they just wanted to talk with someone else who's not a rival or a competitor and, and to be heard. And then just to say, and then they'd say, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Right. So, 
because there was someone that had a common point of reference and they're, they're wrestling with all these challenges. We all are. And it was so cathartic for them to talk out loud to someone that understood and then be able to say in a safe space, how do you see it? And, and just to have that dialogue, whether, whether I gave counsel that was appropriate or effective or not, just for them to, to talk out loud, hear it, process it, and then be able to act after, you know, maybe a day and a half or two days, you could see them literally like weight off their shoulders. Some came to visit uh, Virginia and we'd ride same process. And, and just, you could see when they left just a different level of light um, to go back and do their job again, because they're managing energy now, right? Not right. Not time. And, and so, and that's kind of happened at the speaking as well. It wasn't so much where we reached out, but this, this idea of, kind of the questions you were asking me, this approach, like how, how does that work? And leaders, again, my takeaway is leaders are really lonely and they're really isolated and they don't have many people they can trust or the ones they trust don't understand, or they couldn't share enough for them to understand because of the position of the hierarchy within their organization. And, and so I've just, I've really, really enjoyed the intimacy of getting to speak um, to other leaders who I respect and know listen to them, be able to provide some counsel. And again, but it's not the counsel, it's just the process of being of talking through things that I think has helped them find the answers to uh, what they might've been looking for. Well, as we wrap up, you mentioned that college football or college sports is, uh, and some might say is in a free for all. So you're, you're looking for a challenge where you got, you're gonna have a lot of opportunities oh, there. Man. If you could change one thing about What's happening in college football right now? What would it be? <laughs> well, I um, and we only have a few minutes, so <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's pretty easy. Um, so, so I, I think if, if we're not careful, um, college athletics will just prolong adolescence of young people. It won't be de- developing life skills. It won't be building the depth of character needed. It won't be promoting the leadership and the service orientation. It won't won't be providing amazing citizenship opportunities because the focus on the money and the outcome is becoming so prevalent. Right. And, and that that's not going away. The money and the outcome orientation is not going away. And so these other areas that I'm talking about, it's more work. Right. And I think it's becoming harder for the coaches and their staffs to do this other work because of the time, energy, and effort now spent on the retention of their own roster, um, and some of the additional areas uh, um, financially that are now added in. And that's tying uh, and affecting the motive to why some young people will play. And I love um, a contribution-oriented mindset. I love anyone in an organization that comes in saying, what can I give rather than what can I get? And, and I think we're, we're promoting this level of maybe what can I get for young people rather than what can I give? And so uh, I'll, I'll uh, uh, if you look at the lower level of college football, I shouldn't say level, or I shouldn't say lower. If you look at division two or division three or NAIA, there is a, a passion for the game right. and a purity for participation that um, is vibrant and alive. And, and I'm not saying at different degrees, it's not so at the division, at the group of five level or power five level or FCS level, but I think it's diminishing um, because of the entry points. And so I really think as answer to your question, 
um, some way, shape, or form regarding NIL, if whatever a young person is getting paid, are they worthy of their hire? I'm not just talking about playing football, but if there's an agreement um, for services provided, man, I would love those services to truly be um, representative of the market value and the time, energy, and effort that should go into that to be worthy of their hire in relation to that number. And I would love to see that in addition to this, their ability on the field. Because now I think we're talking about developing uh, future citizens and contributors to, to our society um, that aren't expecting more than what they're giving. Um, and that to me is a concern that um, I'd like to kind of get my head around and, and work on. Well, I hope we can get a lot of people to listen to this podcast because that that was just uh, that was some excellent counsel. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that the, the next smoke fire that you jump into when when a prospect is uh, riding his his horse at your ranch, if he starts talking a lot about NIL, my guess is that he's going to be a thumbs down. Is that right? Okay. It 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 it's it, it, it's how he talks about it and what he's willing to really do for the the salary. Right. That that's um, that's important. And yeah. Um, so here, here's the next part. Right. Is leadership university presidents and athletic directors. They have to be aligned with this approach. Right. And there's tremendous pressure for them to bring in the money and have the success. Right. And so I, I'm saying that we're not going to compromise any of that, nor does it need to be. But if we have these other components, we're all going to be more tired. Right. Not less tired because those are other jobs to do. Right. That's more work to do rather than less. And, and I think that has to be made really clear. Well, you actually fought, in my opinion, you fought a tougher battle at Brigham Young than what you're going to be going into uh, now because you've proven that what other people didn't think kids would do um, can be done. I know in our leadership program, we we make our uh, our student athletes when they go through the program the first night, they have to take their phones and put a file folder label on it, write their name on it, stick it in a box. Yeah. And they're and they don't have it for three and a half hours. Yeah. And first the first week, you would think that, you know, it's one of those slow motion pictures where they're letting go of that phone and, and panicking. And the second week they just drop it a little faster. And the third week they and after third week, they don't even think any more of it. And I, you know, I tell their parents, the kids will do what what you ask them to do if they know you care about them and you're consistent. And you're asked, and and you hold them accountable, and uh, and, uh, and that's what you do, and and I applaud I applaud what you uh, what you have proven can be done in college athletics, Bronco. I can't tell you how much uh, I'm grateful for your time for for doing two podcasts, uh, and and uh, I wish we could do another one, and um, just to get to all the questions I'd like to ask you. But I really appreciate what you shared with us, and I'm anxious to see. Uh, you know what, what smoke you jump, you and Holly jump into, and because uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my money on on you guys. But thanks so much for being with us. It's absolutely my my pleasure, and I appreciate the work you're doing and the example you set. And and there's, uh, yeah, we need more. And so thanks for the example. Well, folks, thanks again for joining us today, and I, and I look forward to having you back with us next week as we spend time with another interesting guest. And if you missed our first interview with Bronco, I want to encourage you to go back and catch that one as well. You'll be glad that you did. And until then, make sure that you're being a positive influence in the lives of others.